Uh, if you have a Bible or if you uh, don't, you can look in your bulletin and turn to Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. Uh, today is our last uh, sermon in this main series in the book of Isaiah. Um, which has been a great journey throughout this whole fall. We will be still in Isaiah during Christmas, but we're going to go back uh, and pick up some of those passages we skip that are directly about the birth of Jesus. And so it's going to be a very Christmas-focused series, but it'll, it'll nevertheless still be in Isaiah for four more weeks after this. Uh, today, uh, Isaiah ends with a bang. You wouldn't expect anything less, right? Uh, you've, you've noticed just how good a writer he is. Um, obviously, he's inspired by God, or at least we believe that he's inspired by God, um, which helps a lot in your writing style. Uh, nevertheless, you, you also see uh, the creativity and the, the background of Isaiah as he's, he's helping get across to us what our hope is as believers. Uh, so let me read these verses to you. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who dies but a few, or lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought to be a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them. Or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tibal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my name among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots, and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord and ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests, 
and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and they will look on the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. The worms that will eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is God's word. As a pastor, and really just as a Christian, I've heard um, lots of objections to the Christian faith throughout my days. Um, lots of different ones. There's, a, there's an immense variety of them. Uh, but one of the ones that I think I've heard the most goes something like this. You know, I would be a Christian, but i just got way too many desires in me. I've got way too many things I want to do, way too much fun I want to have. And you know, Jesus and God and all that stuff and church and Bible, blah, it's like a killjoy. It takes away all the desire. It takes away all the pleasure. Maybe when I'm old and decrepit and I'm no longer able to have the fun that I want to have, then I'll settle things with God and make sure I'm ready for heaven. Maybe you've heard somebody say that. Uh, probably you don't have to look further than yourself. Probably sometime in your life, at least if you're like most people, you've thought that. Uh, not many people I've experienced would actually say it the way I just said it, like that bluntly. But nevertheless, uh, that mindset is extremely prevalent. Wouldn't you agree? I think they're dead wrong for one simple reason. Now, of course, you would expect me to say that, but I want to try to convince you. I want to try to convince you. The word Christian and the word desire are not incompatible at all, in my view. Actually, my, one of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, said it this way. God's beef, his problem with humanity is not that their desires are too big and he can't seem to get them to shrink their desires. Uh, C.S. Lewis says his problem with us as humans is that our desires are too small. I think he's right. This is what he said uh, in explanation of that uh, statement. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the beach. You see, in God's eyes, we are far too easily pleased. Do you really believe that this morning? We're far too easily pleased. God's issue with us is not that our desires are too big, but that they're too small. I think if Isaiah was here this morning, he'd say, Amen. And then he would say, Oh, by the way, read the end of my book. Because you just got to read the end of my book. Because at the end of my book, God showed me a vision of the infinite joy that he offers to people. He showed me what? Look at what it says there in verse 17 of chapter 65. God showed me the new heavens and the new earth that he promised to create. Now this is not speaking merely of going to heaven when you die, okay? Uh, it is, let me just say right out of the bat, it is really good to go to heaven when you die. Amen? Uh, that's something that you should want as a goal of your life. I believe that wholeheartedly. 
But according to the Bible, that is not the final goal. That's not the ultimate goal. That's not the infinite joy that God promises. In the book of Revelation, for example, those who've gone before us who are already in heaven, the souls of, of Christians, are actually praying to God, How long, O Lord? Right now. Meaning what? Meaning they know that even they are not where God has promised them to one day be. There's something greater that God has promised. What is that? The new creation. That Christ will return again. And when he returns, the renewal that he begins in the hearts of people now will one day be spread through all of creation. The, the renewal will stretch from sea to sea, shore to shore, pole to pole. The Bible says the world will be covered with the glory of God as the, as the, as the waters cover the sea, it says. That's the infinite joy. That's the place we look forward to. Even the saints in heaven this morning long for that. And so this morning, I want to challenge us because I think our desires are too puny. Because we're, we're bothered about little things, things of temporary nature that come and go, and certainly we'll lose them when we die. When God has offered to us the equivalent of a holiday at the beach, he's offered us an eternal joy and glory. Let's look over Isaiah's shoulder today, and if you look at your bulletin, uh, he shows us three things about this new creation. Three things to look forward to. First of all, he shows us a joyful city. Second, he shows us a glorious people. And then lastly, he shows us a sobering reality. Okay, A joyful city, a glorious people, and a sobering reality. Let's look at it. First of all, a, joy, a joyful city. Uh, there in verse 17 and 18, if you'll look down at that, it says, look, I, this is God speaking, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not even be remembered. The way things are today on the earth will not be remembered anymore. Meaning, God is going to make the world the place that he originally intended it to be. God is going to achieve his goal. And that's something that we all should expect of God, right? That he would be able to achieve his goals. That he would be able to aim at something and find it come to completion one day. That he'd be able to carry that out. And that's exactly what he says he's going to do. The former things won't even come to mind. And so he says, be glad. Rejoice forever in what I will create. And then he describes the new creation first as a city full of joy. Now I have to admit, sometimes this whole description of a glorious city or a joyful city hasn't always appealed to me, country boy that I am. When I tend to think about heaven or the new creation, I think about forests, woods, rivers, mountains. I think about beautiful vistas and landscapes that I get to go to that I never got to go to in this life with Jesus. I don't think about being in a hustling, bustling, noisy city that never sleeps. And yet, actually, if you want to be more true to the Bible, that's, that's actually how God describes the new creation. A hustling, bustling city that never sleeps. A city of lights. A city where the light never goes out, where the gates are never shut. That kind of place. You say, well, I don't know if that really appeals to me. Now think about it for a minute. What is a city at the, at the bottom of it? What's a city? Is not a city just a collection of people gathered together in the same place under a common government for the common good? Isn't that what a city's supposed to be? Whether you're talking about a city as small as ours, Mulberry, 
or a little bit bigger city, Lakeland, or a huge city like New York or Paris or a place like that. It's just a group of people gathered in the same place under a common government for a common purpose, a common good. And that right there, if you'll understand that, that explains why God pictures his new creation, why he's working towards a new creation which is like a city. Y'all, you got to understand, God loves people. He made them. God loves people. And God wants to fill his heaven. He wants to fill his new creation with people. People who can walk with him and talk with him and praise him and serve him. People who are filled with joy. In fact, it says, the people in the new Jerusalem, in verse 18 and 19, are going to be full of joy because God is full of joy over them. The future city that we look forward to is is so glorious because God loves the city and loves being a part of this city that he's going to create. That's what it says. Look at it. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. It will be a city with no violence, a city with no conflict, a city with no war, a city with no poverty, a city with no starvation, a city with no... You you fill in the blank. All the things that fill our cities today with weeping and with crying will be heard no more because there will be God in the midst of his people rejoicing over them. And they will return the favor. We will return the favor without any sin to get in the way. Isn't that a beautiful thing when you really think about it? I mean, if you can read this portrait and think, you know, my hopes are in the right place this morning. I think you probably need to reread the portrait. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, if you're like me, maybe you're better than me. I hope that you are. But if you're like me, I tend to put my hope in very proximate, I call them proximate things. You know, things that are just, they're here and now stuff, temporary things. Oh, you know, I I just can't wait for the holidays, for example, because that's so great to get the family together and it feels so good, that's where my hope is right now. Or I can't wait to fix the house up in this certain way. I, I can't wait to... You know, get this promotion or that, uh, that car or that, you know, paycheck or whatever it is. You know, we tend to put our hope in little things that are, that are very much here and now. What Isaiah is saying to the people and what God is saying to the people through Isaiah is if your listen to this, if your hope is in something that you will lose when you die, it ain't worry, worthy of being your hope. Right? If your hope is put in something that you will certainly lose when you die, all of all those things I listed will be lost to one degree or another. Then it's not worthy of your hope. Here's what's worthy of your hope. The city I will create, God says. Where finally God's people, this is what the whole Bible is about, if you want to get something in your mind. God's people under, in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what God, the whole Bible is about. God gathering his people in his place under his rule and blessing. If that's not where your ultimate hopes are fixed, your hopes are in something that is going to disappoint you. It's going to let you down. Isn't that right? Think about it. When you put your hopes in proximate things, you know, those temporary things, what happens when you lose them? Despair. 
You're shattered. You're disappointed. You don't know how to pick things back, put things back together again. It's like Humpty Dumpty. Or when you get them, what happens? When your ultimate hope's in something and you get it, what happens? At first, thrill, right? You're proud. You're self-assured. But then it doesn't take very long, does it, for the new to wear off of that thing. And suddenly you realize, wow, this is what I was hoping in. This is what I was looking forward to. I was looking forward to the family together at the holidays. <laughs> or, or whatever it is, you know. Right? Right? Let's be real. We can, we can be real in church. I, I love being with my family. But I also know that uh, it's not the fully satisfying thing always that we all want it to be. Because we're looking for a gathering that's so much better. So much bigger. The gathering that God has designed. That's why the Bible says about Abraham. Abraham looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Don't you think the people of Israel needed to hear this in Isaiah's day? They were in exile out of the land. They didn't have the land at the moment. And God's saying, you know, even Abraham, your father, who was first promised the land, even he didn't put his hopes in the land. His hopes were beyond And so your hopes ought to be beyond too. And I think the same thing applies to us today. Our hopes are not in stuff. I pray that your hopes are not in stuff or experiences or achievements or the praise of other people. I hope your hope's not in that. I hope that your hope is in the joyful city that one day will be gathered to. Uh, in verses 20 and 25, and we, we certainly don't have time to unpack everything there, but man, there are just some beautiful pictures about this city. Uh, first of all, it's a city of everlasting life. I'll just real quick show you that. Uh, it says, never, in, never again will an infant die in infancy. Never again will someone not live beyond 100. That's amazing. It says, if someone were to die in this new creation at 100, it would be like a baby dying, he says. It's the promise of life that never ends. It's something that, that death cannot take away from you. The second thing he says is it's a world of perfect justice. I mean, what, uh, what makes people weep in cities is, in, is injustice. It's, it's that things aren't fair. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And yet here he says, verse 21, They will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will someone work and somebody else come and steal it. In the city God's going to create, you'll work and you'll get to enjoy the fruit of your work. You'll get to build a house and live in it. Someone else won't come and kick you out of it. It says, verse 23, they will never labor in vain again. I mean, what, what is, I mean think about that. I, I know there are some people in our church who struggle to, to, with believing that your work every day, Monday through Saturday or whenever you work, is in vain. That it's just a waste. That it's just uh, going through the motions, punching the clock, collecting the paycheck. Look at what this says. We are going to a city where labor will not be vain ever again. Which, by the way, as a side note, that ought to make you feel like your labor now is not in vain. Which is what Paul says. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Because one day we're going to be raised like Jesus was raised, we do not labor in vain. We don't grow weary of doing good because we know God is able to make something of our little, just like Jesus with the boy's lunch. He takes something small of ours and he turns it into something big. But then you can see there at the end, it's going to be a city of peace as well. 
um, peace with God. They will call and I will answer. Even before they call, I will answer. That's, that's perfect peace with God right there. Before I even pray, God's already answered. And then, verse 25, wolves and lambs together. Lions eating with oxes. They will not harm or destroy in all my holy mountain. The serpent, the Satan, will, will eat dust, it says. He'll be crushed and will no longer harass or oppress. That's the joyful city. Now, secondly, uh, the, Isaiah shows us the glorious people who will fill this city. So remember, this, a city is people gathered together. And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 66... Uh, Isaiah describes the people that God is gathering. And, and, and the first thing I think you'll notice is that the people God gathers are not a people who are glorious because they are glorious in themselves. This is what the Lord says, verse 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you're going to build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has it not, is it not me that made everything? You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you've got to understand this. People don't add to God. God adds to people. Whatever it is that we come into this new creation with, whatever glory we have, it's a gift. It's not that we come and say, God, we've come to enrich you. We've come to build a house that you might dwell in it. God says, no, I fill heaven and earth. I, spill the furthest re- I fill the furthest reaches of outer space. And you're going to try to build some tiny little temple for me? you got to understand the way this kingdom works, the way this city works, is you get in by knowing that you have nothing to bring in except what you've received from God in the first place. And so God makes this great statement there in verse uh, 2 where he says, These are the ones I look on with grace or with favor. These are the people who receive my grace. People who are humble. Humble, that, people who know that they don't have anything apart from God. And people who are contrite or broken in spirit. And who tremble at my word. Who take me seriously because they don't take themselves seriously. Isn't that amazing? God tells us uh, how he gathers these humble people. Uh, if you look at the next uh, verse, he says, because of what they've planned and done, I'm going to come and gather them. You see, it's not about us gathering and filling heaven by our own efforts. We can't get ourselves to heaven, and we cannot get anybody else to heaven by our own efforts. But here it is. God says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to gather people of all the nations, of all the languages, and then they will come and see my glory. Of course, that's a, a beautiful description of Jesus. That God sent his son into the world. And and the reason he did is is that he might come and gather his people to God. That's what the whole thing's about. That's what all of the Christian faith is about. All the church is about. We are populating heaven. We're populating the, the life of the world to come. But we're not doing it by our strength and power. It's Jesus doing it. It's God doing it. Right here among us. And so he says, I will set my sign among them. And I will send them all, all around the nations. And he begins to list out nations, you know, all around. And it's interesting that the nations he lists uh, go in order geographically. Uh, all around the Mediterranean Sea. The, the list there goes from, let me get this right, from west to east and then from east back west around the Mediterranean. You know, the Mediterranean. What did Jesus do in his life 
except pick 12 guys, a nucleus for the new church, taught them, formed them, humbled them, and then sent them out on that same circuit, that semicircle around the Mediterranean Sea where they went to the very nations listed here by Isaiah 700 years before, proclaiming the glory of God in Jesus because it says there, they had never heard my fame, they had never seen my glory, and so I will proclaim my glory to them. And they will bring all your brothers, all your people from the nations. You see, whether someone's a Jewish person by background or a Gentile by background or whatever your background is, if you believe in Christ, you are a brother. You're a sister. You're brought into the same family worldwide. It's a brilliant picture, isn't it, of what the church is called to do. The church, not just this church, but the church with a capital C all around the world is called to gather in God's people from the nations by the proclamation of God's word. I love, I love what he says there. They're going to bring him on horses and chariots and wagons and mules and camels. I mean, it's like they're going to go through the, the sleet and the rain and the hail. And he's saying, like, there's nothing going to stop them. It's going to be like the, you know, the postal service. They used to say about them, you know, that doesn't matter what weather it is, they're going to make it to you. You know, we can debate whether that's still going today the same, with the same uh, rate. But nevertheless, that's what they said. And the church has been this way. I mean, by God's grace, nothing has stopped the church. Even in places where, where a government has been powerful and said, look, we're going to try to squash Christianity. We're going to try to silence the proclamation of the Bible. It's usually in those places where the Bible gets even more powerful. And gathers even more people. Even though it might be underground, and it might be quiet and you know, not in the headlines. Nevertheless, it still is working. But I want you to notice one more thing. This is, this is the kicker. When, when you want to think about what my hope is for the future. It says they'll bring them on chariots, mules, camels. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial, ceremonially clean vessels, and I will even select some of them to be priests and Levites. What are we being gathered for? This tells us. The glorious people that God is bringing into his kingdom that one day will populate the new city, what are we being brought to God for? Well, he says it's just like when the Israelites took a sacrifice to the temple. Or when they took grain to offer up to God. What, were the, what was that brought for? To be killed. To be offered freely, fully to God. A living sacrifice. I want to tell you this. Here's the church's mission statement. This is what I'm trying to do with you and among you. Feed the people with the word to fatten them for the kill. That's it. To fatten them for the kill. You say, well, that sounds terrible. Yeah, if you're a selfish person and you don't know the glory of God, that is terrible. But if you've been made to know the glory of God and it's released you from being so self-concerned that you're only thinking about your life here and now, that sounds like the best news you've ever heard. That I would actually grow up and mature so that I could offer my life fully and freely to God. Like a priest, like a Levite in the Old Testament, living my whole life before his face, offering everything I have up to him. The Bible says that's exactly what's in your future if you're a genuine Christian. The church exists to fatten people for the kill. 
That's what lambs were raised for in Old Testament times. It's no secret why God calls us his lambs. It's not so that we just simply might have comfortable, a comfortable life with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you're a lamb prepared to be offered a sacrifice to your God. Hmm? Is that your hope? Is that what you're excited about? I would hazard a guess. Again, this is another example of how we're like the kid who wants to just build mud pies while God is saying, hey, come to the beach with me. We're so, we're so ignorant, right? Because most of the time we think the most exciting thing in my life is something way different than that. I'm not thinking about being a living sacrifice. I'm thinking about X, Y, and Z and all these other things that I can achieve and do. Rather than thanking God, the best thing that my life could be is a burnt offering. Ascending up in smoke to you. A drink offering poured out on the ground for you. Spent for the sake of my God. That's what heaven's going to be. Total consecration. Uh, the, the life of the world to come. Total consecration. Completely devoted to the Lord. Here's a question. If you don't want that now, what makes you think you're going to want it then? Right? If you don't want to be with God now, why do you think one day when you die, you're automatically going to want to be with God? It ain't going to happen. If you want to be with God now, you'll want to be with Him when you die, even more. Right? Even if you just want Him a little bit now, that's something to work with. But if you don't want to be with Him at all, if you don't think offering my life as a sacrifice to God is anywhere on your agenda, you ain't ready for heaven. You're not aimed for it. You're in a good place because we're here. We exist to fatten you for the kill. If you, would, if you would submit to God's word, it will happen. If you will listen to what he says and tremble at his word, it will happen in your life. But if you resist, it will not happen. Don't you want to be a part of the glorious people that God is gathering in a joyful city? Don't you want that? Now the last thing Isaiah says, and this one I'm telling you, I had such a strong temptation to move this point up in the sermon. Because it's ending on a dour note, a sad note. But I thought, you know, if it's good enough for Isaiah, it's good enough for me. He spent this whole book talking about encouraging things, mostly. But there in verse 24, he ends with an absolute knife in the gut. He says, in this new city there will be, this is the third point, by the way, sobering reality. He says, in this new city there will be a cemetery. A cemetery on the outskirts, like in most cities. You know, cemeteries are typically not in the middle of town. Sometimes they are, but most of the time they're on the edge. Uh, if they are in the middle of town, it's probably because that used to be the edge of town at some point. Right? Everybody got that? And he says here, in the, in the life of the world to come, in the new city that comes down from heaven, there also will be a cemetery on the outskirts. And the people will go out, it says, and they will look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. And then he describes what I think we must say is hell. And the reason why he describes, the reason why I say it's hell is because Jesus himself, over and over again, quoted this very verse in Isaiah to describe hell. It's a sobering reality. It says there, verse 24. 
their worm or the worm that eat them, the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is Jesus saying that it's outer darkness, the worm doesn't die, the fire doesn't quench, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you've ever read the story of Jesus, you've definitely heard those words. Because he says it very often. In fact, no one in the Bible talks more about hell than Jesus does. Why does he do that? I mean, why does God break us? with this announcement of a cemetery in the new world where some people will be consigned forever. The worm doesn't die, the fire doesn't quench. They will be utterly loathsome to all mankind. Why does he do this? Well, remember what it had said in chapter 66, verse 2. The only people who can become a part of the glorious people of God are those who are broken in spirit. God teaches us about not just heaven but hell because one of two things must happen in your life. Either A, you must be broken by God's word now to become glorious forever, or B, you will resist God's word now and be broken forever in the new world, never to be put back together again. Those are the two options. Broken by his word now, in this world, in this life, tremble, learn to tremble at his word, as it says, or risk being broken by God in the world to come forever and ever. Either way, that's why God is breaking us. Jesus, when he spoke about this hell and, and described uh, verse 24 to his people, oftentimes he was overlooking the the city of Jerusalem, um, like when he was on the Mount of Olives. And actually, you could see from the Mount of Olives a place called Gehenna. Uh, and Gehenna was actually right next to a cemetery. And the word Gehenna is actually the word Jesus prefers to use for hell rather than Hades, the word Gehenna, because Gehenna described the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And when you looked out over the garbage dump of, dump of Jerusalem, I'm told by scholars who've studied this thing, you would have seen worms and fires that were constantly burning. It was an awful place. And Jesus says, look, you see that cemetery right there? And you see next to it that burning trash heap? You don't want that. That's not where you want to be. Your heavenly Father sent me into this world, his Son, so that the world might not perish but have eternal life. You don't want that. What you want is to humble yourself under my word... Now, to recognize yourself to be poor in spirit now, bankrupt now, so that you can receive the healing balm of his spirit and so that one day you might be brought to full glory instead of everlasting shame. If you've followed Jesus for any length of time, and some of, I know we're all in different places here. Some of you not following Jesus at the moment. Some are. Some have been following him for a long time. Some for a little time. If you've been following him for a long time, you know this. Sometimes walking with Jesus feels like God is breaking you. There's really just no other way to describe it. God is breaking me. This passage explains why. It's the breaking of a tender father. 
He breaks us mercifully now so that we don't have to be broken later. That's why if you're someone who hasn't followed Jesus for a while, you're not sure if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to recognize the call to come to Jesus is not a call to your best life now. It's not. It's not a call to ease, comfort, um, you know, just a little Jesus sprinkled on top. It's a call to be fattened for the kill, to be broken down so that you would tremble at his word. You'd be ready for that city that he's going to have so much joy in, so much delight in, and that you are going to be so delighted and enjoy yourself. I wonder if this morning you recognize in yourself your desires are way too small, way too small. God is offering a joyful city. God is offering for us to be glorious people. I mean, us, just us, to be his glorious people. That's amazing. But lastly, God wants to break you with the sobering reality that not all will enter in. Not all will come through those gates on that final day. That's what makes it very important that we listen and bend our ears now. Amen.